Excellent. We're doing week number two of, um, of this series, um, Easter 2017, Myth, Mystery, or Miracle. And uh, this is part two. So I wanted to start with um, questions from last week. Um, uh, again, the, the whole premise of this, the Easter story in churches is often assumed just to be true. And sometimes uh, Christian people, people who go to church all their lives, have all these questions about Easter and nobody's answering them. And they're afraid sometimes to ask them because people around them will think that they're doubters or think that they don't believe or that they don't have faith. So they kind of keep those things down and push them aside and say, okay, let's, let's, let's worship and all of that because Jesus is risen, but I haven't got a clue why. And, uh, you know, they kind of live their lives like that. And then when it's time to share your faith with somebody else, you have no clue what to say when someone turns around and says, well, how can you believe something as crazy as the Bible? So that's kind of why we're, we're doing this series. And uh, I do take questions at the end. I'll do that again today and handle your questions. There are some amazing questions that came in last week. One of the best ones that I've heard, I haven't heard this one in a long time. And this is a, you, may, you may find this a basic question, but this is a great question. Somebody asked me, what's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Why is the Old Testament called the Old Testament and the New Testament called the New Testament? You may say, well, that's a really basic question. That is an amazing question because without Jesus, without the idea that Jesus has come and has died on the cross for us and that we have no more need of a, of a temple to go into and, and bring animals to, to be temporarily forgiven of our sin. Without Jesus and what he did on that cross and rising from the dead, there is no New Testament. So the New Testament is the new arrangement with the relationship that we can have with Jesus Christ. And everything before that, we therefore call old. Uh, the author of Hebrews spends a long time trying to explain this, 13 chapters trying to explain why all of that up to Jesus is now passe. There's no more need for a temple. There's no more need for animal sacrifices. In fact, 40 years after Jesus died, the temple was destroyed. It's never been even rebuilt since then. So the whole sacrificial system went bye-bye because we have one and one only in Jesus on the cross. And this is why we call it the New Testament. Every time we celebrate communion, we're answering the question that was asked. Jesus said, this is the new covenant or new testament in my blood. This is the answer to the question. So I thought it was amazing. And um, uh, more questions came in last week about um, what we call the canon of scripture. Okay, and last week we talked about how did we get the Bible well, this is, this is one that I wanted to go in a little bit of depth with you uh, before we get into the main content for today. Because many of you come from a Roman Catholic uh, church background. You live in the province of Quebec, and so you've been exposed to this maybe. And so we have all these questions because the Roman Catholic uh, teaching and Bible will have a whole chunk of books in there that our Bible does not. Last week we talked about 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, and we, we tried to build a little bit of an argument for why some books are regarded as authoritative and some aren't. But let me give you a little bit of detail here and flesh it out. Uh, we've got a couple of slides on the screen to explain this. When, when, we, when we look at books that we call the Bible, it's not that the people in the second and the third century decided, okay, this is Bible and this is not Bible. 
what they were doing is basically catching up to what was already known. So their decision was to say, well, look, we've got, we've got the spread of Christianity here that's happening like crazy. The, the, the church is exploding across the Roman Empire. There's no more temple. There's no more sacrificial system. The whole Jewish religion is all changed because of that. Everything is all, all like different now. And the, the Jews recognize their own, their own uh, what we call 39 books today, and they still recognize them. But there was this need to say, well, hold on. Like, we've got all this literature exploding all over the place. What is, what is authoritative and what isn't? What is of God and what isn't? So they use different kinds of questions to try and answer this, and this is really how we get the 66 books of the Bible. Um, is it authoritative? In other words, is the book in question that we're looking at, or letter, or whatever it is, is it authoritative? Does it have some type of, of statements in there where the person is claiming that God is saying something through them? doesn't prove that it should be the word of God, but does it have a mark or a sign of authority on it? That was one question they asked. Is it prophetic? Is it prophetic? So is there any kind of prophecy in there? Is there any kind of prediction in there, any kind of proclamation in there where we can test it and where we can say this definitely has the mark of the supernatural in it? We'll get into this at the end of the message as well. Is it authentic? Is this book written by who? claims it was written by. So if it says, you know, Paul to such and such and such a church, well, can we verify that? Was it really Paul or was it somebody else who claimed to be Paul? Is it dynamic? Is it, is it known to have been, been used in, in church circles? Is it dynamic? Did people quote from it? Was it life-changing material or is it just something that is floating around on the side? And was it received? Was it collected? And was it used in the worship of God? Did people recognize it as, as the word of God? And all these different tests is what they used, and they said, well, okay, th it's obvious to us then that there are some things that clearly stand in a, in a place on their own. And this is really where we get the 66 books of the Bible from. But ultimately, uh, I will talk about the, the Jesus test when it comes to this question, all right? Um, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 16, Peter speaks of the apostle Paul, and he says this. He says, Paul writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. You have to read the matters when you read the letter. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. So here he's doing exactly what we're saying. He's saying that what Paul is writing is scripture, and there are people who try to distort this and other scriptures to their own destruction. Again, is it authoritative, prophetic, authentic, dynamic? Was it received, collected, used? The Jesus test is basically after we ask all those questions uh, about whatever the thing is, the Gnostic Gospels, all this stuff, which you'll hear about even in pop culture today, the Jesus test is, did Jesus recognize it? Did Jesus talk about it at all? Uh, when we look at the Old Testament, Jesus essentially canonized the whole Old Testament. He basically believed every, uh, every one of the 39 books of the Old Testament that we recognize today, Jesus put his stamp of approval on those things. Luke 24 and 44, uh, after his resurrection, he's appearing to the disciples and he says to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, 
the prophets and the Psalms, or sometimes they would call that the writings. This basically is naming the three sections of the Old Testament as per what the Jews understood. So he's basically saying everything in the 39 books of the Old Testament is talking about me. And so he's canonizing the whole thing in one fell swoop there. He does this also in Matthew 23, verse 35. And this is the context is the seven woes. And he's really chastising the religious elite there, the, the Pharisees. And he says, so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth. My, from the blood of righteous Abel, book of Genesis, to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah. This is in Second Chronicles, which is at the end of the Hebrew Old Testament back in their day. So he's basically saying from the first book to the last book of the Old Testament, you are all going to face this, this wrath, Jesus says, to this group of Pharisees. But what's he doing there? He's recognizing those books as authoritative. So it's pretty easy for the Old Testament when we put the Jesus test on it. As far as the New Testament, Jesus promised and he declared that what he was teaching would be repeated. And it would be repeated and taught. John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the counselor or the, the advocate or the lawyer is the word there. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Well, how will he do that? Uh, uh, John chapter 16, verse 13, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will only speak what he hears and he will tell you what is to come. But how will he do that? Uh, Acts chapter two, we see that it's through the teaching of the apostles. Um, they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. So if it has an apostolic connection to it, it's the promise of Jesus, it's the teaching of Jesus that's repeated over and over again. So you've got to do the Jesus test on it ultimately uh, to figure out whether the thing is Bible or whether it isn't Bible, all right? So anyway, part two today, and if there's questions that come up in your minds as we're going through this stuff, uh, please ask them at the end. We, we'll probably have a little bit of time. We want to answer the question, can we really trust the Bible? We base our lives on the book, or we claim to. We make life decisions based on the book, or we claim to. Uh, and we, we espouse it and declare that it's the inspired word of God. Well, can we really trust the book that we call the Bible? And this is an enormous question for us to wrestle with. Because when things get difficult in our lives, will you still trust God's word? Or will you say, well, maybe it's not so true after all. Maybe it's not real after all. A lot of times people think that serving God is we serve God because it will make our lives better. So when our lives get worser, we say, well, God isn't real. Well, this is not a very solid reason to trust God. There's no promise in, in God's word that your life is going to get better because you give it to him. Uh, the promise is that you give it to him and that you're forgiven of your sin and you have a relationship with him that will go into eternity. That's the promise and the guarantee that you have. 
But to think that your life is going to get better because you become a Christian, watch out for that. Because when your life gets worse, you probably are going to be tempted to not be a Christian anymore and try something that works. Well, if the Bible is trustworthy, then it doesn't really matter what your circumstance is. You continue to trust God because you believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Let me give you a tangible example of this. And the statistics prove this. Do you know why people give in churches today? Why people give financially? I am not shy at all to talk about money in church. Okay, you'll learn that about me over time. I'm not shy about it at all because I know where it goes and I know how God uses it. Uh, But do you know the number one reason why people give in a church? It is not because they like the church. It is not because they like the pastor. Some of you may not even like me and you're still here. There are, there, the reason why people give to the work of the local church that they attend is because they believe that the Bible is trustworthy. They believe that the Bible really is the Word of God. They may not like their church. They may not like their pastor. They may not like the worship. They may not like the seats. They may not like the sound or the lights or the whatever, but they believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and so they give. The statistics prove this. This is measured around the world. So believing that the Bible is trustworthy is a huge, huge deal. When it comes to the Bible, if you're looking at religion all around the world and you're looking at all these books that claim to be from God, when it comes to the Bible, you have something very, very unique. You have a God who is clearly supernatural clearly depicted as a supernatural God from the first verse of the thing, in the beginning God created. He's supernatural, but he comes into history that's verifiable. The context of the story is a verifiable context. The historical culture, the geography, the the politics, the people, the practices. There's a context of the story of redemption that is deliberately something that we can verify. So this is very, very different. This is a very different thing that we're dealing with when we look at other religious books. We're not talking about a collection of sayings. We're not talking about a literature that simply tells people how to live. We're talking about God who comes into history, into a context, into time and space. So he dares to present himself into the real world. He's not up on Mount Olympus somewhere. You know, he's not, in, he's not on another planet. I mean, he dares to come into a historical world. So the thing is, can we, can, we, can we prove that? Are there any points of tangency that we can see with the real world, as, uh, even though it's depicted in God's Word? So when the Bible talks about people, places, things, all these things, can we check it? Can we see if the Bible is at least correct about those things? That's the first big thing that we want to do. Are there any points of tangency, points of connection with material that's non-biblical? I'm going to stick just to the Easter story for the next few moments because we would be here for hours if I were to do this with the whole Bible. This, is, uh, this would take months to do actually with the whole Bible because what we find when we look through the pages of the Bible is we find hundreds of these things, these points of connection, these points of tangency with the real world 
as shown to us in non-biblical sources. We find all these points of connection, and so we can say, well, when the Bible talks about such and such in terms of its context, it's right. And we can demonstrate it, and we, can, we, we have evidence to support it. So, for example, points of tangency just in the Easter story. Um, on the screen behind you is a, a monument that we found. Uh, they call it Pilate's Slab or Pilate's Monument. It's found in 1961 in Caesarea. It's 25 inches wide. It's 32 inches high. And it translated, it says, to the divine Augusti uh, Tiberium. This is Tiberius Caesar, who's mentioned in the pages of the New Testament. Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea has dedicated this. So what, what this is, is Pontius Pilate dedicated this thing to Emperor Tiberius. For years and years and years, people were saying that Pontius Pilate is depicted in the pages of the New Testament. The Easter story wasn't a real guy. He says a fictitious guy, he's not real, and yet they find this thing in 1961. It's got Tiberius's name, it's got Pilate's name, and this, this corroborates perfectly what we know of these characters from the pages of the New Testament, which means that it's, it's, it, it got it right. There's a point of tangency there, a point of connection, and that is very, very impressive when you're able to say, we can go back 2,000 years and say this thing that we're reading, this book that we're reading about this man, this was a real guy. And archaeology has shown it to us. The rocks have shown it to us, regardless of what anyone believes about it. The evidence is there. Let me show you something else that I've had the privilege of standing in front of. Uh, this thing was found in 1990 south of Jerusalem. It's 14 inches high, 29 inches long. Um, it's a box of bones. Um, and it's a very ornate box. It's made out of limestone, and the design that you see on the front there is very, very ornate. Uh, back in the day, that was for somebody who was very, very important. They found hundreds, if not thousands, of these ossuaries uh, in the Middle East. W what would happen is uh, they, would, they would bury a body in a tomb if they had enough money, and when the process of decay, try not to be too graphic, had fully happened, they would take the bones and they would put them in these ossuaries or these boxes. And these are the bones of Joseph Caiaphas, the high priest who tried Jesus. It is an amazing find. And when you stand in front of it and you see that name scrawled there in the Aramaic language, I'm telling you, it sends chills through your, down your spine. They had this thing in, in Montreal at the, um, at the museum in, in old Montreal, and I just stood there and looked at it for several minutes because you're looking at the bones of the man who, who officiated one of the trials of the Lord Jesus himself. The Bible got it right. It's a point of tangency that's very, very clear, and it's nothing that somebody can dispute. Again, a supernatural God comes into the real world in things that we can check and things that we can verify. Let me show you something else. Uh, for many, many years, people doubted the crucifixion story of Jesus and his execution on a cross. He said, well, we've got some people who've written about crucifixions, but we haven't found any evidence of anybody ever who's been crucified. So how do we even know that Jesus was crucified? Well, in 1990, again, in, uh, in Jerusalem, 
they found another ossuary, a collection of them really, and uh, one of them is the ossuary of this fellow, uh, Yehohanan, Yeho son of Hagakol. I hope I got that right, okay, in Jerusalem in 1990. Well, that picture is of the man's ankle. There is a seven-inch iron nail that is still fused inside of his ankle. And the, the archaeologist who found this thing uh, has comments on this, and he said this victim died of crucifixion. Uh, both of his feet had been nailed together to the cross with a wooden plaque while his legs were bent to one side. So they would use, in his view, a little wooden plaque like a washer to keep the, the, the flesh affixed to the cross. Sorry to be graphic, but this is the conclusion. And he says uh, in the next slide, his, arms, uh, his arm bones revealed scratches where the nails had passed between. Both legs were badly fractured, most likely from a crushing blow meant to end his suffering and bring about a faster death. Well, if you know the Easter story, when Jesus was on the cross, they wanted to make sure that he was dead. And so they were going to one of the Roman soldiers, we're told in John 19, was going to go and break his legs. He did that with the other criminals who were crucified on either side of Jesus. But when he comes up to Jesus, he says, the guy's already dead. There's no need to do it. And so the, the, there's, a, there's a further evidence of this where a spear is thrust into the side of Jesus and blood and water comes out. I'll get into that later. Uh, but this, this, this find in archaeology shows that John 19 has it right and that they did do this. The Romans were vicious in, in the execution of people with crucifixions, and they would go and they would break the legs of the victim to ensure and hasten their death. The Bible gets it right once again. And you find dozens and dozens of these points of tangency. Again, we could go on for, for several hours uh, in this. I'll show you another one. It's quite interesting. This is called the Nazareth Decree. There's a little bit of mystery behind it because no one knows exactly where it was found, uh, supposedly in Nazareth. It has a first century date. It's uh, two feet long and 15 feet, uh, uh, two feet long and 15 inches high. Late 19th century uh, was found. It's a first century slab, and it has some very strong warnings from Caesar about disturbing tombs. I will read you the, the translation in the English language. Uh, it's an edict of Caesar, and he says this, It is my decision concerning graves and tombs. Whoever has made them for the religious observances of parents or children or household members, that these remain undisturbed forever. But if anyone legally charges that another person has destroyed or has in any manner uh, extra, uh, extracted sorry, those who have been buried or has moved them with wicked intent... Uh, those who have been buried to other places committing a crime against them or has moved sepulcher ceiling stones against such person, I order that a judicial tribunal be created. Just as is done concerning the gods in human religious observances, even more so will it be obligatory to treat with honor those who have been entombed. You are absolutely not to allow anyone to move those who have been entombed. But if someone does, I wish that violator to suffer capital punishment under the, the title of tomb breaker. 
If you know the Easter story, one of the excuses that people had for the empty tomb was that the disciples, the body was moved, or the disciples stole the body, or someone stole it. But this is exactly what the decree is saying. He's instituting a capital punishment for this kind of thing. Why does this appear in a first century thing in Nazareth of all places? You can't prove that this is because of the empty tomb, but wow, there's quite a point of tangency there. And again, there's a little bit of mystery around this find. Uh, you know, there are people on the other side who recognize it and see it in line with the gospel story and say, no, 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 it has nothing to do with it, but it is a remarkable coincidence. It certainly doesn't go against anything uh, in the gospel story. So my point in all this is there are all of these points of tangency. And we see them in the Old Testament. We see them in the New Testament. There are literally hundreds of them that we see, and they lend credence to the trustworthiness of the scripture. But when you boil it down, when you, I'll make it really, really simple for you. There are three big questions that people have about whether or not the Bible is trustworthy. Really, it only falls into three categories. You can take every question and they'll find their way in one of these three or all of them one way or another. The first big question, did the story change? If I were to start over on this side and say to Diane, I wish this service would end quickly, pass it on. And Diane turns to Shirley and says, I wish this service would end quickly, pass it on. And they go all the way up and down and all the way through and down and it ends down here at, at uh, uh, Justin. And, uh, and then it's over. What do you think Justin will hear? I wish this service would end soon. He might hear, I wish this service won't end soon, right? So the, so the question is, don't worry, it'll end soon. So the, the, so the question is, well, if we look at the Bible, this is handwriting on animal skin and papyrus with, with uh, crude instruments. Are we really crazy enough to say that the story, or they're hand copying this thing over hundreds of years hasn't changed I mean, if we, if we start here and end here and it changes here in, in 20 seconds, what's it going to take in, you know, 1,600 to 2,000 years? Isn't the story going to change? This is an amazing question. This is a great question. Fortunately, we have a good answer for it. You go to the, the picture that I showed last week, the how we got the Bible picture. You've got the, the original autographer, the actual inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. It's all lost. We don't have any of it. And if anybody said that they found an original book of Deuteronomy or whatever, it would be doubted forever and ever. Nobody has ever found an original or could even prove that it would be one. But what we have is a lot, a lot of copies of it, a lot of them. And when we have these things, we want to know two things. We want to know how old they are, and we want to know how many there are. How old and how many? They start very early. There are many of them. I'll give you some numbers in a, in a few moments. They're in many languages, and they're 99.5% pure. What I mean by this is, if I were to take a, a, a printed page and I were to do the same exercise and hand it to Shirley, or, or even, even give you all a printed page and say to you, I want you to copy uh, uh, every single word, every letter, everything that's on this page exactly as you see it with your hand and hand it in to me. 
and bring it back. I would see in probably every single one of your, your little pieces of homework a small error. I would see some of you wrote the letter A twice. I would see some of you skipped a word. Some of you moved this around. Very, very minor stuff. But I would probably see my, a minor mistake in every single copy that you would give back to me. Now, if I lost the original and all I had were the copies, I would have to say, how good are these copies? How many have I got? How early were they made after I gave them my original? And can I rebuild with a degree of confidence the original from all these little copies? And this is what we do, friends, when we talk about the Bible. We call this textual criticism. It's not a bad word. It doesn't mean we're criticizing the Bible. It means we're trying to figure out what did the original say because we don't have it. We have all of these copies and we have to say, can we rebuild an original from all of them? And fortunately, in the case of the Bible, we can do that. It is like no other book in ancient literature, particularly um, the New Testament, but the Old Testament is astounding as well. I'll start there. Uh, with the Old Testament, you've got about 14,000 manuscripts. A manuscript can be a little scrap like this, or it can be a full book. Uh, in that Case for Christ trailer, there was a guy holding an actual manuscript. I think that's the John Ryland's manuscript, the actual one in the little glass there. That thing dates to 125 AD. It's an amazing, amazing find. But anyway, I'll see it in the movie. In the case of the Old Testament, you got 14,000 of these things, these things kicking around. 10,000 of them date as early as 800 AD. That's not that early. That's kind of late. The, new, the, the Old Testament was finished, uh, you know, like 400 BC. So this is a long, long gap. If you talk about 800 AD as the oldest, but... We talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls last week. You've got 190 or so manuscripts there. They bring your date way back to like 200 years before Jesus was even born. And they say the same things. There's no change that we see that's measurable uh, in between those two chunks, those two big finds. And then you've got about 4,400 assorted copies, different languages, all this. When we put all these things together, they all pretty well say the same thing. To about 99.5%. And then you have these little discrepancies. Well, was this word copied twice? Was this moved here? And this sort of stuff. In the end, there's about a 150-year gap, and that's it, between when the Old Testament was finished and when these old, old, old little scraps start turning up. And so we can look and we say, that's really, really good. That gives us a really good idea that the text of the Old Testament that we hold in our hands today is based on some pretty solid manuscript evidence. In, this, in the case of the New Testament, it's even better because there's more, uh, uh, less time involved in the, in the, when, when the events in, in question finished and when the book started being published. So you got 5,000 of these manuscripts kicking around just in Greek to say nothing of the other languages. The earliest ones date to around 100 AD, like the one you saw in the trailer. That thing is 125. Even liberal scholars uh, will not push that date. They say it's about 125. What we know about the New Testament is that the thing is being copied within the lifetime of the contemporaries of Christ. So it's, it's, it's being copied while Peter is still alive. That's how fast 
people wanted to get that message out. We talked about this last week. That is something that is unprecedented in ancient literature. In the entire ancient world, we do not see that. It's an explosion of manuscripts as if that there was something that happened that was so significant that they had to get it circulated very, very, very quickly. And this is what we see. The early church fathers are quoting major sections of the New Testament before the end of the first century. That's how fast it was circulated. That is mind-blowing. It means that there's basically no time gap. There's no room for the story to change from one end to the other because the people are alive at the same time. It couldn't have changed. People would say, hold on, hold on. There's no resurrection. This is a change in the story. But this is not the case, in the, in, especially in the pages of the New Testament. There's, no, there's virtually no time gap whatsoever. So this idea of did the story change, it's a very hard argument to hold and to sustain. You'll, you'll see Lee Strobel will, I'm sure, talk about that uh, in the movie that we'll see in April. The next big question that people will ask, well, then, if the story hasn't changed... We'll give you your manuscript evidence. We'll give you all of your points of tangency and all of your la, 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 la. But how do we know that the story is true in the first place? What if they just lied about it? What if they got together and they said, well, we'll set the thing in a historical context, but we'll invent this beautiful story about redemption, but it, it will basically be a lie. We'll, we'll, we'll do it for noble reasons. We'll do it because we want to encourage people, but we know that it isn't true. The, the problem with this is that the, the early Christians, again, I'm zeroing in on the Easter story, the early Christians, all of them, were executed for their faith. They were all, they were all persecuted and executed for what they believed, all of them. And this is a, this is a uh, people do not die for what they know is false. Even in the modern world, to use modern examples, we see these people now who, who go and they're suicide bombers, we call them, and they do all of these heinous things, but they do so because they believe something, and they believe it with all of their heart, friends. It, it may be wrong what they believe, but they believe it. They don't think that it's a lie, and this is why they're giving their lives for whatever bizarre cause they have. Well, people do not die for what they know is false. It never happens. You can't find any instance of this probably in all of history. Uh, Chuck Colson, who, who went to jail in the Watergate scandal with the, the whole Richard Nixon thing, uh, Colson would become a Christian later. He's an exceptional uh, writer and teacher before he passed away just a little while ago. Colson said, we couldn't keep the Watergate lie for 10 minutes. We couldn't hold that thing for 10 minutes. And we're expected to believe that these people, these Christians, died for what they knew was false? Impossible. They certainly believed that what they wrote was true and what they saw was true. And the whole story takes place in a hostile context anyway. You've got the enemies of the, of the church. You've got the enemies of Jesus. I mean, if they're going to lie... They're really foolish because they're going to get caught in their lie really, really fast. The argument starts to get weaker and weaker. And even more so, the writers of the story claim very boldly that they're telling the truth. And they're putting their reputation on the line. You see this over and over again, Galatians chapter 1. Uh, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached was not made up by man. 
It's not from human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ himself. He certainly believed that it was true. He certainly did not believe that it was a lie at all. And he put his life on the line uh, for the gospel. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus in power. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it. We're not lying to you. We're not inventing something. We saw it and we believe that the thing is true. Acts chapter 26, uh, Paul is in front of two uh, authorities of Rome there. He, he's on his way to Rome to, to stand trial. And uh, one of the officials there, Festus, who we can, again, another point of tangency, we can corroborate this fellow. He interrupts Paul in his defense and he says, you're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. And he says, Festus, I'm not insane. I'm not crazy. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king, and he's speaking of Agrippa, who's in the room with him, is familiar with these things. I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it's not been done in a corner. The execution of Jesus was public. His resurrection is known. It's not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And King Agrippa turns to him and says, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? He says in a little tongue-in-cheek there. The point is, this is, we're not dealing with something that people knew was false. It wasn't a lie. John chapter 19, uh, uh, one of the soldiers who pierced Jesus' side brings forth a sudden flow of blood and water. And the, the one who saw it, who's John himself, he says, the man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. Testimony is like a legal term that we use. His testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth. And he testifies so that you also may believe. There is no way that we can hold the argument that this thing is a deliberate concoction, a deliberate lie. Well, okay, we could say, oh, maybe it's not a lie. Maybe the story didn't change. Maybe we have these points of tangencies. But maybe these people who wrote it down were just plain dumb. Maybe they just didn't know the difference between reality and fantasy. Maybe it's an exaggeration. You know, it says that Moses parted the sea in the sea. Well, maybe it's a little bit of wind and Moses wrote it down like that. You know, it's an exaggeration. They're pushing the limits. They're smoking too much magic mushroom in the first century. They don't know, you know. Well, when you read what they're, what they're writing, these are really simple people. They write in a very simple very sober style. Uh, they seem to know the difference between reality and, and fantasy. Uh, Luke writes in, in the beginning of his book, many have undertaken to, to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they've been handed down. Uh, by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything, in other words, I'm not dumb, uh, from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you were taught. He's saying, I'm not dumb. I know what I saw. I know what people saw. And I'm writing it down so that you know and so that you will understand. John chapter 21, this is the disciple who testifies to these things. This is John writing about himself and wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. 
Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Clearly, these people are not dumb and there's not magic mushroom. There's something that they saw. There's something that they experienced. There's something that they were eyewitnesses of and they put their lives on the line so that the story would be transmitted over and over and over again, right down even to us in the 21st century. So the story changing, the story being a lie, the story being an exaggeration, none of these things hold weight when we talk about the trustworthiness of the Bible. Let me give you the final, what I call the the silver bullet, or sometimes we call this a smoking gun uh, of prophecy. This is where... The case case of inspiration comes into play. We can say all of these things. We can talk about manuscripts. We can talk about all of these things, all these intellectual things, and that's all fine. But if we can demonstrate that this God who is supernatural or claims to be supernatural, that he has predicted something in this book that we claim to be trustworthy, and that something has actually come to pass, then, friends, we are dealing with a whole different thing there. If we can demonstrate this, then the the presupposition that we all have against the supernatural, that, that starts crumbling. We, have, we all have issues with the supernatural. Oh, well, I don't see it happening today and all of this. But if we can demonstrate that this kind of predictive prophecy actually happens and can be checked and corroborated, we're dealing with a whole separate thing. Then we look and we say, oh boy, we've got a supernatural God on our hands who has indeed inspired this book. And this is the prophecy silver bullet. I want to do something really bold and give you some homework as we finish today. Right? Is it okay if I give you homework in a church service? Is that okay if you're still awake? All right? I want to give you some homework. Really, really easy homework. You don't, it, it, you don't even have to read it. You can listen to it online somewhere. Nowadays, you can listen to the Bible online. Just sit there and listen. Okay, I want you to look at these chunks of Scripture for next week. I want you to read the 22nd Psalm in the Old Testament. You know the first words of the psalm. If you've been in church for any length of time, Jesus quoted them. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quoted them in the Aramaic language. I want you to read that psalm. And then I want you to read those sections of the story of Easter, specifically the crucifixion of Jesus from John 19, Mark 15, and Matthew 27. Some of you, you can do this in 10 minutes. Some of you, it's going to take you all week to do. It doesn't matter. Do your homework, okay? I want you to learn something and see something about this silver bullet of predictive prophecy. This is just one example. There are literally hundreds of them in the scripture. I'm picking one that's really, really well known, and it's out of the Easter story. You read those, and we'll talk a little bit about them over the next couple of weeks uh, that we have together. But when you can demonstrate that predictive prophecy in the book we call the Bible is real, you are playing with a whole different paradigm. Then you have no choice but to say God is real, God is supernatural, and he, through his divine providence and will, has put this book together for us that we would have it today. 
Yes, I believe that we can trust the book that we call the Bible. Thus ended the lesson for today. You've been a really good group. Some of you fell asleep. I saw you, but that's okay. I take that as a compliment. It means that I've calmed you down. Okay, so before we finish today, we've got about two, three minutes left. I'm going to do this message in another church tomorrow, and I'll probably put some of them to sleep as well, okay? But I take that as a compliment, all right? I will take any questions that you have. We've got time for one or two before we pray and finish today. Anybody, you can raise your hand and shout it out. Going once, as I always say, the question that you're afraid to ask is usually the best one in the house. Yes, Evo. Great question. She said, what's the first language that was used when the disciples wrote down history? The language was the Koine Greek. So the the disciples, speaking of the New Testament, the entire New Testament is written in the Greek language. This was the common language of the day uh, in that place in the world. The Romans had conquered the Greeks, but the culture and language of the Greeks remained. So it was written down in the Greek language. Great question. Do you speak Greek? No. Okay, yeah. So we have to translate from Greek into all these languages, which is another travail. Amazing question. Anybody else? Yes, Diane. Yeah, amazing question. So she's saying, why do some, and I've heard the arguments, why do some say that the King James, in particular it's the King James, is the only Bible and everything else is, you know, I've heard them say it's, it's the devil, it's the, they, they invent the, all these translators, they work for a secular company, so I've heard all kinds of wacky things. Uh, there's a great old preacher, he's now passed away, he studied at McGill, I believe, his name is Perry Rockwood, still on the radio, and he's a King James only pounder, you know, and I love to listen to him, uh, he's really good about some things, but King James he's not so good at. Here's the issue. If that were true, then the entire world would have to learn 17th century English. The Bible wasn't even written in the English language. It's written in Hebrew, Greek, and a little bit of Aramaic. So what the King James does is it uses a group of texts, a group of manuscripts that were certainly good manuscripts at the time, but in the, in the 20th century, there was a lot of new stuff found. So the, the King James did not have the luxury of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The scrolls were found in the 1940s. So those are much older than the manuscripts that the King James uses. So what happens is you've got the, the versions from like the 60s onwards have the luxury of using manuscripts that are older and that date back further. And so you see this 0.5% discrepancy. Okay, so you see that the NIV, for example, will take a passage that the King James, you know, emblazons on its pages, but it will write in the bottom in a footnote that passage. And it will say, this passage appears in an 11th century manuscript, because that's what King James had. So the King James only people go, oh, humbug, you know, the NIV, this is a terrible version. 
Well, I can find problems in every single version of the Bible. Uh, the King James, for example, um, Acts chapter 12 and verse 4, I think it is, uses the word Easter in its translation. The word Easter is not in the Bible. The word should be translated Passover and not Easter, but they do that. There's a passage in, uh, in 1 John, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. This is a passage that is from like a, uh, a 10th century manuscript. And it's a, it's a very suspicious passage. So the NIV will put this down in a footnote and say some late manuscripts have this passage. Yes, it's a passage about the Trinity, but if you take that passage and you go and you talk to a cultist like a Jehovah's Witness, which I've done, they will tell you, this passage is not trustworthy. Don't use this with me. And they would be right. Does, the, does this mean that the Bible doesn't teach the Trinity? Of course not. The Bible still teaches the Trinity, but we're just talking about that 0.5% variance. So we can't get hung up on one Bible only. That's a dangerous thing to do. NIV is a good version. It's got problems. King James is a good version. It's got problems. And we also have to learn about the way that these Bibles are translated. So sometimes Bibles will use what's called a word for word uh, in the modern language, and they'll try and translate every single word exactly, exactly, exactly. So if the, if the Hebrew has five words, they're going to try for five English words. Not easy to do. Others, they're going to use a little more dynamic thing, and they're going to go thought for thought, like the NIV is a thought for thought. The King James is a word for word. Um, the Living Bible is a total paraphrase. So you have to know what theory of translation they're using there. But what I would say is use two or three different Bibles if you're reading a passage. Don't use one and don't get hung up on one. Because the more that you learn about textual criticism, the more that you know that the King James only argument doesn't really wash. If it did, we'd all have to learn 17th century English and, you know, thou may not like us that. Okay, would you?